Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. To everyone who's joining, I know that um, we haven't done this in a while, so that's why we're letting you trickle in and everything. But um, in the interest of time and because there is a lot of content to cover, we're going to go ahead and start this session. So this is the Florida Medical Directors Association, um, our Geriatric Journal Club. Um, we are joined today um, by a, a woman who needs no introduction, Dr. Swati Gar, um, who's going to talk to us about the upcoming challenges we're um, expecting to face with not only the COVID surge, um, but um, um, influenza, RSV, and how we need to be prepared. So with that, I'm going to ask Dr. Gar to share her um screen and uh, what we're going to do a little bit different because there's so much content we're going to take breaks in the presentation so if you have questions please 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 start entering them in the um the chat as we are going through the content all right dr gar it's all yours or swati i might as well call you swati we're basically yes, sisters at this point <laughs> We, we are. We truly are. And I really appreciate you guys inviting me for this. The background of this is um, the following. We are going to uh, look at the last slide, and I think that's going to paint a picture that I, I didn't know. Um, and essentially what we are seeing is that, you know, the case counts are going up. Uh, there has been a real concern um, well, the, the, the bad news, good news, right? The, the case counts are going up everywhere in the United States. And um, now we have resources. Uh, you know, we kind of have a completely different situation this winter. Um, and, and there has been significant concern all the way up and down, you know, all the um, agencies where, you know, the concern is that people kind of somehow feel that COVID is over, which it is not. And we are not utilizing the resources that are available to us. And the guidance, the other thing that has happened is that the guidance has changed very, very quickly in the past few months. So I just wanted to come here and talk to you guys about what we are doing. So what the evidence that is coming out is what we are doing, how we are adopting that evidence into real results in uh, you know our nursing communities and how we can together take the resources that are currently available to us which are incredible and turn that into success that, um, you know, in, in our communities as well. So with that, I'm going to kind of go over these four things, assess the current threat, um, review the evidence um, that is coming out and the evidence-based resources that are available to us, plan our blitz against the respiratory viral threat, and then discuss the common questions and myths that you are getting asked all the time. And, you know, I will be honest, some of those were real questions for me as well. And I realized that, you know, the answer to that was not what I expected. So I am bringing that in as well. So without further ado, this is what is going on in long-term care, this is NHSN data. And what we see is in the past months, these big hills or mountains kind of happen during the time that we find ourselves in. So we are seeing that the last two years during the winter months, they have been especially hard in our long-term care communities. And I've been showing this slide for a while, for the last three months or so. And I can tell you that I started out like around this, you know, around the July, August timeframe where actually in September, the kind of numbers went, started to go down. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a diff different year than the past two winters. And now I am kind of sad to say that it seems like there is going to be that 
um, you know, we are hurtling towards another peak. And can we do something to turn this around? So here is what I kind of got from, um, you know, this is Florida uh, specific. Um, this is Florida specific numbers. And as you can see, the case numbers in the residents in Florida are going up. And they are kind of, again, on that fast upward slope as of last week, there's a week um, lag, um, there were about 600 cases in long-term care facilities in Florida. And um, that is certainly kind of going up. The other thing that we are seeing, and I think I want us to pay attention to this is, if you look at January, 2021, and uh, the January 2022 and the areas between that. So we have this peak in January 2021, then it kind of came back down to a deep valley. And then you saw that peak going up again in like maybe August time frame, And you kind of saw that go down again, you know, uh, and that was, I think the beta uh, variant surge. And, and then it went down to a deep valley, which where the case counts were super low. And then we have that peak again in January, 2022 with a deep valley. And since then, what we have been seeing is these rolling hills. So I want us to pay attention to that pattern as well, because I feel like that pattern is gonna continue. We don't keep um, patients, uh, uh, we don't keep COVID in our nursing homes. It comes from the communities and the communities are seeing a surge of COVID. Unfortunately, because, well, fortunately, because now everybody has tests available and a lot of people do not have that reporting requirement, we're not getting the right picture of what may be going on in the community. However, what we know is the cases in nursing home residents are going up primarily because of the cases in our staff that are going up. And as of last week, we have 365, so 365 staff members positive in Florida, 600 residents positive in Florida. I know that we have had this narrative of, well, the families are coming in. It The pattern of Outbreak is different if it is transmitted by a staff um, versus transmitted by families. And we can go into that if uh, we do want to discuss that, but that should be very, very clear when we are doing our root cause analysis on what happened um, as far as outbreak is concerned. Every time we have an outbreak, we kind of go in and see what could have happened because that gives us a great area for containment um, of that case. This is something that I didn't know. I don't know if even you guys were aware, but this is the staff death rate. We do know that there are about 750 um, long-term, uh, 750 older adults dying every week of COVID. But this was an eye-opener for me that Florida, just in the last week, apparently had four staff member deaths, according to NHSN data. And that is not something that I was aware of. And that is, it, that is like, you know, a big shock to me. In the country, in the last week, we lost 22 nursing home staff members to COVID. And I had no idea that that was going on. We talked about the reliability of data that is testing-based data. And I have seen that before the, the map starts to change, the community transmission starts to change to a significant level, um, what we are starting to see is that our staff members are testing positive, which kind of tells me that, you know, if I compared it to the previous times that our staff members had started to test positive, um, 
the current data is underestimating and taking a long time to reach that high level of community transmission where I think it is being underestimated for the reasons that we just talked about. So this is a more reliable indicator. Again, all this data is coming straight from CDC data tracker. So please, please, please go in and assess the threat level on CDC data tracker. Almost, I do it on a weekly basis and discuss with my nursing home. Um, but what I we are seeing is this is the wastewater surveillance where the sewer water in multiple locations gets tested for the activity of COVID because everybody poops and everybody might not be telling us whether they are positive, but you know, this is a more accurate way of figuring it out. I can tell you I've been looking at it for a while. And what I have seen in the past is a lot of blues and light blues and dark blues. And light blues and dark blues are actually good numbers. What is not good is the yellows, the oranges, and the reds. And what that's what we are seeing right now. This is from this week. So Florida is seeing a lot of oranges and reds, which means the COVID activity in the wastewater surveillance is very high. And that's certainly not what we want to see. So remember, I talked about the rolling hills and not those top, you know, high peaks and um, sharp valleys, especially the sharp valleys, because it did give us that lull where we thought that we could take a deep breath. Well, right now, this may be the reason why we are not seeing those deep valleys. This is again, HHS region four, which has Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and other three other states. What we are seeing, if you look on 1217 data, at any given time in our communities, we are seeing about five variants, five or six variants that are reaching that level of more than 5%. What does that mean? Several several things here. This is a very, very good chart, which kind of tells us the bad news, good news. The bad news here is the following. We are not going to see that lull because as you may imagine, when we saw that Delta surge, right? We had a lot of people getting sick with Delta. Delta was the predominant variant and it was all like, all these bars were like solid lilac with Delta and that has changed. So because everybody had the Delta surge, there was nothing else circulating in the community. You got a lull after, you know, it ran its course. Now what is happening is BA5 did the same thing, but then look what started happening. You know, so if you went to 917 data, it was primarily BA5. There was some predictability around, you know, that sharper peak and then deeper valley. Now, what is happening is people may be getting infected with BA5 and might turn around, contract the BQ1.1 or BQ1 or BF7 or XBB, you name it and get reinfected. And that's why there is that CDC um, guidance change from 90 days to 30 days, because now all these um, things are circulating and you could, you know, there's not good natural immunity between these sub variants. So people are just turning around and getting infected again. And that's why you are not getting that like deep valley or that moment to catch your breath. Here is the good news in this whole thing. If you look on the left side, that whole lineage label is Omicron. And what we know is that the bivalent booster has a specific activity against Omicron variants. And that may be why we might be seeing that benefit of using that bivalent booster, the new studies that are coming out, the data that is coming out from CDC, shows that it is superior to the previous boosters that have been given. So here's the other number that we need to worry about. This is the COVID-19 weekly cases across the board. This is HHS uh, region four. What we are seeing is 
look at the older adults. That's that's what we are seeing, these numbers in that black box. If you are above 50 years of age, you are the largest group um, having the highest numbers of cases, right? That That is a little bit of an issue, right? Because as you're older, it sets you up for higher number of cases, but look at what really happens by the weekly deaths. If you are that older group, you're actually at a very high chance of dying. So you multiply the higher number of cases with the higher number of people who are likely to die of COVID, you got a product of that, which is not where we want to be. So this is the problem statement. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for 2023 to gain access to our live and archive webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, and Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. Moving on to go, go ahead. Go to influenza. Just um, a couple of questions, and if anyone has yes. a question, please take yourself off mute. You can ask or enter it into the chat. Um, I'm just curious. You know, I know that right now when we're looking at the data and um, we're we're getting reports out through our Department of Health every um, two weeks. They're updating that um, report. Um, our last positivity rate for the state of Florida was 13.1%, but I don't think that accounts for all of those home tests. Um, I, I find it interesting with the wastewater surveillance. Where um, should we, if we're working in our facilities, what reports are available to us um, that we could get maybe on a weekly basis or something that we could see so that we can um, take action sooner if mm -hmm. um, some of this data is lagging behind? So certainly um, that's a great question. And this is literally on CDC data tracker. That is, I have favorited that site. And essentially what I do is I go in I will go to the um, CDC data tracker. It has wastewater surveillance. That's the number one data point that I go to because wastewater is your number one thing that will go bad. It's a, it's a lead indicator. So when things start going bad, that's the first thing that kind of lights up. And when things start actually going good as well, that's the first thing that lights up. So if you remember when we were in the Delta surge and we were so inundated with this is never going to be over, that, you know, the, the wastewater surveillance is the first indicator that started showing in uh, Boston area in the Northeast. That's literally the lead indicator and the lead state. So it started showing that those blues and I'm like, okay, so there is still the light at the end of the tunnel. So it is on CDC data tracker. The other thing that I follow is on the left pane, you're going to have healthcare settings. In that healthcare settings, you can literally go, if you click that, it's going to be resident cases and staff cases in nursing home. There is an NHSN module that will give you um, staff cases, sorry, resident cases, resident deaths, staff cases, staff deaths. Um, and you can click on your own state or you can look at what is happening in the country. Those are very important indicators that I look at all the time. And then as we go on, I can show you the other things that I access through um, so through the um, CDC data tracker. The other important thing that I also access is this because, and this we will go when we go into the therapeutic, especially the monoclonal antibody. I knew from looking at this map uh, for region four, 
that we had to stop using monoclonal antibody ahead of some other regions in the country. And that this is the reason why. This explains a lot. So I think, you know, I would definitely encourage everyone to go and look at these data points in um, CDC data tracker on a weekly basis. Yeah, thank you. We have no other questions at this time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a great question. All right. So moving on, we have been hearing about this triple demic. Well, this is the second chapter of that triple demic um, saga. Um, and as we can see, um, the flu activity in our region is particularly bad. And the the issue with that is that, you know, we have been for the past several weeks um, seeing this very, very high level of flu activity. I mean, you know, the whole country is inundated with flu. And that is the other important, and I have put in the um, the, ad, the web address to this. I would strongly urge us to look at the flu activity because it helps us determine when to use therapeutics and when not to use therapeutics. As you may know, and we will get, uh, you know, touch upon this later, CDC has changed the guidance on how do we assess and treat for flu. The guidance that had come out is if you are in a high threat area with flu, you need to end, people start having influenza-like illness, then you need to empirically treat them with Tamiflu, while you send out the flu RSV COVID swab, and we're gonna get into that um, in a minute. This is something that I pulled today. Um, and as we are seeing that the red, um, the red part of the curve is the curve that is showing this year's flu activity. And this is lab confirmed influenza hospitalization data, as opposed to influenza like activity on this map. Um, this is lab confirmed. And as you can see, this is a really, really um, scary trend that we are seeing. Look at the data at this data point on in this year and at this time frame in the past year. So this is from 2014 onwards until this year. The red dots line that is steeply going up is this year's data. If you can see in 2020, 2021 is that orange line that is very close to zero. And the line, the deep blue line above that was 2021, 2022. And I wonder why these lines were hugging the zero, uh, the zero line. Um, what do you think happened here uh, in the past two years? And that is, um, that's basically, I don't know, I can't see the um, chat, but um, the bottom line here is 2021, 2020, 2021 was the year when we were all freaked out, all wearing masks, all washing our groceries, washing our hands, Remember, that's when we washed our milk cartons. That's what happened. So we had zero flu activity. And then, you know, it opened up last year after, you know, we got some vaccines and now flu is back with a vengeance. So certainly something that we are seeing, we have seen our staff members testing positive. Um, we are seeing high flu activity in, in our areas. Um, we need to be very, very careful in how we um, treat the flu. This is the RSV surveillance data. And we have seen the same, uh, again, RSV surveillance is only happening in the hospital. So in hospitalized patients, um, people are testing for RSV um, to do surveillance. And we are seeing some really uh, worrisome trends here. Number one trend is, again, this is the 2020, 2022-23 uh, uh, data. And as you can see, um, you have the this huge sharp curve. And if you are uh, related to a, a pediatrician or 
are a pediatrician or talking to pediatricians, they are pulling their hair out because ICUs are full of kids who are positive for RSV-related pneumonias. Uh, and it is a problematic trend. The other part of this trend is this, which is another problematic trend. If you see the age group, typically zero to two years is what we used to worry about. Now that has expanded zero to four years is the higher um, RSV hospitalization. But look what happens if you're older than 65. Your rate of hospitalization and testing positive for RSV and being in the ICU goes up significantly. And that is very worrisome for our patients. So we need to be cognizant of the fact that it could be any of these. All right. Anything, any other questions that we are having? I'll pause for two seconds. Are we going to we do have a question. How do you address growing frustration and resistance among patients and families regarding vaccines where data is now showing that current strains of COVID like XBB and BQ1 seem to be untouched by vaccination, even new bivalent vaccines? And thank you, Dr. Levine, for that question. Thank you. I think we can address some of that in the coming data that we are seeing um, that, that has just come out. So again, there is this MMWR that was released. It's from November 22nd. And what it is showing is that the updated bivalent booster is actually does provide additional protection against the symptoms, symptomatic COVID-19 illness. And it, basically they kind of looked at all comers and they, um, they saw, uh, what the diff what the time frame difference was between you know the primary vaccination or their last vaccination whether it was primary vaccination one dose two dose three doses or four doses uh, total of vaccines and depending on where you were the farther you were away from the the last uh, vaccine there is now data that is available which is showing that the bivalent boosters are actually much more effective against symptomatic disease, which is kind of the conventional wisdom says that it doesn't prevent symptomatic disease, but it there is data that shows that it could be up to 50% more effective against symptomatic disease as well as death. So there's this study and you have that link I have um, uh, included in that study um, of, that, uh, of that MMWR article. Um, and that is a good one to look at. But I also wanted to, again, show that, you know, CDC includes is now including data on bivalent boosters, which, uh, again, it is on um, covidcdc.gov on data tracker. On the left side, there is that area on vaccine effectiveness, and you can access the, this data easily. This data actually has been updated since this slide. And it does show that it is three times more effective and people have three times lower risk of being positive compared to unvaccinated. The top line is unvaccinated. Blue line is vaccinated with previous boosters and the green line is vaccinated with a bivalent booster. And what we are seeing is that lower rate of symptomatic illness that we are seeing with the bivalent boosters. And people say, well, what is, you know, if I take that vaccine, the bivalent booster, I could still get COVID. Sure, you could. But your um, chance of getting COVID and symptomatic illness is going to be much lower. And how do we translate that into um, you know, real strategies? We have used this data to actually... Um, for, for a couple uh, areas in our nursing home, two areas. One is... We were super um, vaccine forward when bivalent uh, forward when the bivalent vaccine boosters came out. And what we did is we said we are going to give the new flu high dose flu vaccines and our bivalent booster. And we did co-administration at the same time. We did that big push. And what we are seeing is different from uh, some of our partners or some of the other nursing homes in the area where they are seeing these large outbreaks, you know, with 20, 30 patients involved. 
Um, what we are seeing is one C's and two C's, you know, and I think, you know, that's where this data kind of translates when you vaccinate a large number of people. What you're seeing is you are seeing either we are completely escaping, you know, there has been a staff who was positive, but the patients didn't test positive. There is a patient who tested positive, but they didn't give it to other people despite having activities. So we are using that as a strategy to have normalization in the patient's lives, a resident's lives, but still create that environment where we are not having these large, so our outbreak numbers are limited, which, you know, I'll take that any day. If my COVID unit has one or two patients, as opposed to 20, 25 patients, then I'm kind of freaking out that, you know, what I'm done, right? Um, because our COVID unit is not huge, it is small. Um, so we are able to limit the outbreak because of this strategy. The other thing that we are able to limit is the number of staff members. So what we are seeing is the staff members who have had their bivalent boosters really is translating it into them having a lower chance of testing positive with COVID, being out for 10 days. And that is the staff that I didn't have, right? You know, we are all staff crunched. So we are using that strategy. We are going to the staff members and saying, you get your bivalent booster because it is, it will give us that edge. You know, even if it is two people that we are able to keep inside of the nursing home working, that is the two people that we cannot let go of or we don't have the luxury of losing staff members. Uh, so certainly we are using that strategy to um, to make sure that we are uh, limiting our outbreaks and limiting our staff that is out. Here is the number. Here's where the number gets actually even better. So this number has changed now to 18.9 times. So this is the death, total deaths. And what we are seeing is that bivalent booster is 18.9 times. Um, it gives you that 18.9 times lower risk of dying of COVID-19. And that's how we are kind of putting that strategy to work again to make sure that our residents are boosted at a high rate with the bivalent booster so that, you know, if they do actually get sick with COVID and are in the COVID unit, they have the best chance of not being admitted to the hospital, getting seriously ill and dying. And what we have seen is really since the since we have um, done that big push on bivalent boosters, while we have had outbreaks and while we have had patients who have tested positive, they are literally kind of doing this, you know, this is just another viral infection for them. So that is how our strategy is translating where our people are not getting super sick and dying from COVID. So we are not contributing to that 2,900 number of people who died last week of COVID. So that is the other um, advantage that we are seeing. And again, this data is available and this data is getting updated as we uh, just a question, if I can yes. interrupt. Again, the data, the data is showing data to October, and it seems like the these new strains are are becoming more prevalent now in late November and December. And, and I find within three weeks, five patients who never got COVID, who've been fully vaccinated, plus the bivalent, all got sick from this strain, not connected to one another. And they were questioning, well, why did I get this spike? No, I said you can still get COVID, but they they were still getting it. And I don't know if that data is applicable today because it's changing so rapidly. I mean, you're talking about data from September, October. We were seeing mm -hmm. different COVID then. There's already right. a kind of we're, we're we're dealing with looking at those numbers you showed us, where it's, it's the whole BA five is dropping down. We're seeing other mm -hmm. strains that seem to be. Re I, I'm just not convinced that that these vaccines are any. You know, it looks like these new strains are not being affected much by the vaccinations. So the, I, um, sure, and I, I appreciate that. You are absolutely correct that the data is lagging behind, and um, I should have put the updated uh, data that actually just got into the CDC data tracker. It would be interesting to see um, uh, see what is going on, uh, you know, on this data as we move forward. Now, this is from September twenty. 
5th, it seems like October 1st. That data has been updated to, I think, late October now, if I'm not wrong. And that is the data which actually shows much better outcome compared to unvaccinated people. Uh, as far as dying, uh, you know, people dying of COVID is concerned. Uh, this lower number of, uh, you know, uh, lowering the risk of positives in COVID has moved from 3.2 to 3.1. So that's the data that we have available. It's going to be interesting to see if the vaccines are going the same way as the monoclonal antibodies. So far, uh, you know, I can only, you know, in absence of you know these large data points uh, and live studies going on right now, I can tell you from my experience, from our experience, is that you know we have seen that shift from huge outbreaks to now having one or two you know um, people who are testing positive here and there, and certainly we are seeing that. Um, that um, I think our patients are not getting super sick despite being, uh, you know, having that, you know, very, um, being very frail and having those multiple medical problems. So even our sickest patients are kind of having good outcomes. And, you know, I feel like, um, you know, that is being contributed by our vaccine forward strategy. And, but and, I, and, I, yeah, go ahead. I, go ahead. And the other question I have is that there's some evidence that natural immunity may give you some protection, whereas vaccinations may not be giving the same kind of protection. I don't know if this data ever includes people that have had prior COVID versus people that have never had prior COVID. Uh, and, and again, in personal experience is that people that have gotten sick haven't spread it to family members who have had COVID before and everyone's been vaccinated fully. But it seems that that prior COVID actual natural immunity has been somewhat protective against these newer strains where the vaccines don't seem to be as effective. And I don't know if this data is ever looking into who's had COVID versus who's just had one vaccine, who's had a new bivalent. I mean, if they're comparing those, all those groups are just looking at vaccinations versus not vaccinations. That That is correct. What they are looking at is um, unvaccinated, vaccinated without uh, updated boosters, vaccinated with updated boosters, what we do have is other data points like the study that I had quoted earlier uh, that was just published in MMWR and actually the newer MMWR early release also has data um, uh, on the data that you're talking about, you know, what happens when people have had, you know, two boosters in the past. Um, what we know is that people who have been, who have had COVID in the past and have been uh, who have had COVID in the past are still benefiting from the vaccines. Um, so we have those studies. Do we have it on bivalent booster? I'm not sure. Uh, however, I don't think that I have not seen a study that kind of head to head compares it or compares actually uh, studies the effectiveness of bivalent booster against something like XBB. Um, so I would be interested in seeing those studies come out. And, uh, you know, before I can, you know, kind of say that, you know, it is effective or ineffective. Now, as far as having previous COVID um, and, and natural immunity is concerned, so any time, right, you have, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, what we are seeing over and over again in these people who anytime they're studied, people who have had COVID are going to have some degree of antibodies, right, uh, neutralizing antibodies, what we know is that if you have had a different strain of COVID, your neutralizing antibody might not work against the future, um, you know, a different strain or a different uh, variant of COVID. However, if you do get, if you vaccinate that person who has had previous COVID and has some inherent antibody uh, against COVID, you will actually bump that, right? And you're going to bump that at a higher rate, at a higher level than what they would otherwise have. And that's why, you know, and that translates into real world data that people who have had COVID in the past, when they do get vaccine, they are much better protected against the vaccine. So we do see those, uh, we have seen those studies and they have been done in, you know, in the wild type virus against the wild type virus. I think we have some against alpha variant and we have some against delta variant as well. And if I'm not wrong, we would have had some against the earlier Omicron variants as well. So those are the studies that kind of show over and over that 
your natural immunity, whatever you had. The issue with natural immunity is it is unpredictable. It depends on the severity of your illness. So if you were not super sick, your level of immunity that you developed was lower and it kind of waned away faster. Um, so it is unpredictable. Whereas when you do give that, um, you give give either the booster or the uh, vaccine, your immunity level is more predictable, and it kind of it it tends to last as a at a predictable level. So that is the advantage of you know kind of. That's why I always say to my patients, you know, you you get the um, you get COVID, you turn around, you need to if you're eligible for a booster, you should get the booster. Um, uh, taken as well. So, yeah, and, and Swati, just to add on, I think that there was a study that came out in 2021 um, that showed that um, people who were unvaccinated who had COVID had a 5.5 um, chance of getting COVID again in comparison to those who were vaccinated and had COVID. So, you know, I think there are some there are some studies. Um, we'll try to get them up and and available to uh, to everyone on the call um, in our library. Right. Thank you. And I um, I'd be happy to share the studies that I was just talking about, Diane. Um, moving on to flu vaccine. This year's flu vaccine is actually incredibly effective um, as opposed to the flu vaccine that had come out. I think two or three years ago. Um, three years ago now, you know, before we knew anything about COVID, which was kind of dismal. Uh, and when, if people had said, um, I don't want to take my flu vaccine, I was not fighting with them, but this year's flu vaccine, actually the CDC did a great job anticipating the uh, flu variants that we are going to have. And, uh, you know, it is really, really effective is what we are finding out. So flu vaccine, will decrease your chance of having severe symptoms and hospitalization by 50%. And it for admitted patients, it decreased the ICU admissions and it also decreased the duration of hospitalization. So that is where we are very much kind of saying, give your flu vaccine. This year's flu vaccine is incredible. Give your flu vaccine and give your COVID bivalent booster and try to co-administer them and we can talk more about co-administration. So this is the this is what we know about the flu vaccine. If nobody has taken, if people have not taken flu vaccines in the past, I have gone and talked to my patients and talked about, you know, this year's flu vaccine is effective. Now, if you combine with the kind of crazy amount of flu that is going on right now and the increase in hospitalization with flu and the increase in mortality with flu that we are seeing, this is a good strategy to employ to have your older adults be um, safe this year. Let's quickly talk about infection control. This is a great study. Again, I'm not going to go into that, but it is a great study to refer to when we are asking our staff to wear a N95 mask, when there is outbreaks, when we are asking them to do face shields, and gowns, um, you know, to use PPE. So just a brief brief note because RSV does not have a vaccine or a therapeutic. Here is how things get transmitted. COVID has very, very small droplets to the size of aerosols, right? You know, it kind of has that kind of temporary aerosolization. Your infection control strategy should have a high grade mask for the staff and residents. It should have it should have your air, your air purifiers. Your building should have strategy to make sure that your HEPA filters are updated. Your air circulation is good because that's where COVID gets affected, right? Um, then comes the flu. Flu is a little bit bigger droplet, but it, you do need mask. It gets prevented by mask. It gets prevented by hand washing and fomites, right? Very small particles, medium-sized particles, big particles with RSV. RSV is a big droplet issue. You need to wash your hands. You need to wash your fomites. You need to like clean your equipment. That's how it's going to get transmitted. So it is important to remember how these viruses get transmitted and make sure that we are utilizing appropriate strategies. I'm going to jump on to Paxlovid and talk about this study, which um, actually just came out very recently. 
uh, 13th of December, 2020. It is that Paxlovid study, Paxlovid, um, the EPIC HR study, which showed 89, so like 90% effective in, in having serious illness and death outcome, um, and hospitalization and death outcome, and basically just no brainer, right? If so what we have utilized this, this treatment strategy is basically as soon as we have a patient positive, whether they are vaccinated or unvaccinated, all our nursing home residents are high risk by virtue of being in a nursing home. You know, they are there for a reason. Typically they have several, men, uh, several issues, um, health problems. You got to consider them for Paxlovid. We have considered them for therapeutics, every single patient who gets admitted to the nurse, uh, to our COVID unit, gets assessed for therapeutics and gets started on therapeutics within 24 hours of that diagnosis. And that is because of this incredible study. People say, the ID physicians are saying, one of the most effective antiviral, most underutilized, we need to start using Paxlovid. This is the study on all comers, 51% less likely to be hospitalized than those who weren't. This is from the same MMWR that came out that showed the effect of bivalent boosters on against the current circulating strains of, um, um, of COVID-19. Um, Paxlovid for mild to moderate COVID-19 were 51% less likely to be hospitalized than those who weren't. How does that translate? We do know from the previous studies, our patients are probably going to have that advantage of or um, um, the outcome benefits of about 89 to 90%. All comers, 51%. How does that translate? My staff, who is very functional, who may have one or two medical problems or no medical problems, if they are having mild to moderate symptoms, I am asking them to go get assessed for Paxlovid. Our family members, our children, um, my son who has reactive airway disease had COVID, mild COVID, but I asked him to get assessed for Paxlovid. Um, he called the Department of Public Health. They called it into uh, the, his nearest pharmacy. Now CVS and Walgreens have partnered with Uber and they will get the Paxlovid delivered to your nursing facility or to your home. So take advantage of that as well. This is a study that basically showed the effect of Paxlovid on long COVID symptoms. And this is funny because I know that I was there last month, I think, talking about long COVID syndrome. Thanks for inviting me. Um, and I had just said that, you know, long COVID syndrome sort of kind of, you know, is related to the amount of inflammation that potentially might be one of the ways that long COVID may happen. Could, because the vaccines, we know clearly that the vaccines, you know, there are about six or seven studies that show that vaccines actually will prevent your long COVID syndrome or decrease your chance of having long COVID syndrome. Well, Paxlovid does too. So again, this is, very relevant for people who are, are long-term care residents that we are seeing long COVID in, but also our staff members, our young people, they need to take advantage of Paxlovid as well. This is a HON that came out actually yesterday, December 20th, um, Health Advisory Network. Your first line therapy for um, COVID is your Paxlovid. Um, also remdesivir, 81% reduction in um, serious hospitalization and, and death. Second line therapy is molnupiravir or Ligavrio. Veptilovimab is no longer, no longer uh, indicated. It has been taken off your NIH guidance. Please do not give it monoclonal antibody for anybody who has tested positive for COVID. Evichelt, if you are giving, also has shown decrease from Dr. what Dr. Levin was saying. What we do know is I'm not sure of any data that shows the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of vaccines against the current circulating variants. We do have data that show ineffectiveness of monoclonal antibodies against the current circulating um, uh, Current circulating um, variants, so subvariants, the the uh, subvariants that he mentioned, XBB, and the um, BQ1, BQ1.1, have 
decrease in effectiveness. Do not use monoclonal antibody. You can continue to use Evisheld, but I think we will see that uh, guidance change as well. Evisheld is used for people who are not able to get the immunity high enough because of immune compromise status, et cetera. And uh, currently we're continuing to use that. Therapeutics should be used for anybody who's age 50 years or older, has an underlying medical condition or have moderate to severe immunosuppression, regardless of their vaccination status, they should get it as soon as possible after the symptoms. We have we have started storing Paxlovid and Legavrio in our nursing home e-boxes because we want to start that treatment early. The earlier you start, the better you have the outcome. You have to start antiviral treatment uh, those two medications that I just mentioned within five days. And if you're using remdesivir, you can use it up to seven days, um, but it is just a harder uh, medication that we have found out to use because it's IV and it has to be given for three days. Um, this is the risk continuum and I am just putting it out there as you get older, as your medical conditions increase, as your vaccination status changes and as your immunosuppression increases, you do have that higher chance of having a poor outcome. The slide is here to tell us the following. Once you have that test positive, whether you are doing a test because of you know the, um, the blanket test that you're doing because of outbreak issues and the patient is not having symptoms or patient is having mild to moderate symptoms, you got to start the treatment based upon the test. So as soon as you test your patient test positive, they should start getting considered for therapeutics. That's what the, late, uh, the latest QSO memo also says. So based upon that, actually we did it before the QSO memo came out. Here is what we have done. This probably is the most important slide. This is how we have changed our policy and procedure in our nursing home setting. We know that the level of COVID is going up in the community. What we have done is lower threshold for testing. So I can tell you, if my nurse is calling me and saying, Mrs. So-and-so is asking for an anti-allergic, um, I'm like, sure, we can give them the anti-allergic, but also please, can you do an antigen test and a PCR test on them? Do they... So that is basically expansion of our criteria for clinical surveillance that we have done, which is anytime a patient is complaining of headache, um, body aches, Flu-like symptoms. I, I have a sore throat. I need. I'm. I'm having increase in runny nose. All those are going in. The other thing I will tell you: the last outbreak that I had started with this one gentleman who had no respiratory symptoms, no GI symptoms. All he was doing was he was trying to stand up. Had three falls in the same day. And we ended up testing him for COVID and he tested positive. He was our index case. And I missed it because I didn't think that falling could be a proxy for having being COVID positive. So we have included that in our symptoms uh, as well. Increase the frequency of your clinical surveillance testing. As soon as a patient has has any symptoms, they're getting tested for antigen tests. They're also getting flu RSV COVID-19 PCR. Once any of them are positive, they're getting transferred. So if antigen test is positive, we're transferring them immediately to the COVID unit and instituting a standing order basically to make sure that we are communicating to these key people, the medical director, um, let's see, the medical director, uh, infection preventionist, consultant pharmacist, DON, and admin. So there is a chat that goes out. Infection preventionist is supposed to do the following, contact tracing, PPE determination, and frequency of testing. The consultant pharmacist, I sat down with my consultant pharmacist and have made a checklist for Paxlovid and Legavrio. What is the kidney function? What is the liver function? What are the medications they are on? Every single patient gets assessed for them regardless of who their primary care physician is, who is managing them. We are centralizing that function and we are assessing them for either Paxlovid or Legavrio and essentially creating this list of recommendations. You need to stop your statins for these many days. You need to hold the DOAC. Are you okay with these? That's the communication that goes out to your other physicians in the building and 
typically they're saying, I'm fine with it, or they're assessing for stopping that DOAC for a few days. Um, and then, of course, the medical director, DON, and admin, they go out and they do a fresh appeal to uh, all the people who are still not vaccinated, and we are communicating to the families about the importance of vaccination. So we can go straight into the myths. These are two great areas where myths and facts are there. Um, and these are a few myths that you will be hearing, and these are the studies that help. You know, you got to do co-administration, otherwise you're never going to get them to um, uh, to take those two vaccinations separately. This is an important one that I just wanted to address before. Somehow from the new CDC guidance, we think that we have to wait for three months after the patient has tested positive for COVID. That is not correct. I actually clarified this and got this language straight from the CDC. You can actually give that bivalent booster as soon as the patient is non-contagious. So we are giving that within the first one or two weeks of people being non-contagious if they have not had the booster. Um, more myths, we are actually accelerating our vaccine drive if there is an outbreak. Here are some of the resources that you may have in your facilities, uh, in, in available to your facilities. Please reach out to your QIOs, a shameless plug. Please do not wait for symptoms to develop. It is too late if you're waiting for symptoms to develop. This is a huge myth. Paxlovid causes rebound. No, it does just cause rebound in Dr. Fauci and the president of the United States with a few other people. It actually, this is a study that shows if you didn't take Paxlovid or any other therapeutics, the viral rebound is 12% and the symptom rebound is 24%. This is a study that compared Paxlovid with Legavrio. It shows that Paxlovid rebound was 3.5% viral rebound as compared to 12% rebound without having anything. This is, I will let you guys read this on your own. So the important strategy right now is PAX, is VAX and PAX. Vaccinate your person, consider them for Paxlovid, and we can drive down the mortality for COVID. Here is, here is um, the last slide, so important. This is available again on CDC Data Tracker. Please, please, please look at this. This is how we can get out of the pandemic or epidemic. And as you can see, we got a super optimistic around, oops, around this time um, in September of this year when we thought that we were going to get out of the epidemic because we were very close to the seasonal baseline. That's where we want to get is close to the seasonal baseline. The numbers have started going up, but here are the strategies that you have. Bivalent booster, and, and what the numbers that go into this calculation is people dying of pneumonia, people dying of influenza, and people dying of COVID. Once we can drive down these numbers by these strategies, bivalent booster, 18 times, 19 times lower mortality, Paxlovid, 90% lower mortality and um, hospitalization, flu vaccine, 50% lower, Tamiflu, 71% lower. Please consider these four things for your patients. That's the end of my wow. talk. Yeah, <laughs> with two minutes. If you guys have any questions for Dr. Gard, you could please um, email them to us. Um, all of these slides will be made available. There's also, um, AMDA has a, a COVID toolkit that came out recently that we'll try to get a link for you to have available. I don't know. We have um, maybe less than two minutes, but if anyone has any pressing questions, we could take one. I hate to take up your time, but with the, the isolation strategy after, let's say, a coworker gets COVID versus taking and then taking Paxlovid and getting asymptomatic, is, is that change at all? Does isolation or the quarantine time or return to work time have any impact by Paxlovid? No, we do not. Currently, CDC has not changed their guidance in the isolation and quarantine. And that's why we want to make sure that, you know, people are set up right by getting that bivalent booster um, to decrease your um, chance of getting COVID. And, is there, and a lot of times Paxlovid has serious side effects, diarrhea, muscle aches, things like that. Is there a time where you would just stop it midstream because patients are so uncomfortable? 
So we have, I will say that we have not had to stop anybody's Paxlovid. And as opposed to what the conventional wisdom is, for the most part, like 80%, 85% of our patients have received Paxlovid. We're just holding their statins. We are holding uh, their medications based on, there's a beautiful package insert, like uh, insert from FDA. Uh, and I can make that available, uh, Diane, I can send it to you. It has red and orange uh, guidance on red. Please do not use it with Paxlovid. Orange, look at the, uh, look at the um, levels. Like, for example, DIG is orange. You've got to follow the levels. We have not had to stop a single Paxlovid. Patients do complain of that metallic taste, but it's the taste is same as um, flagyl, taking flagyl. Um, so it is actually easier to use than typical uh, what people are talking about. Yes, Bob. <laughs> yes, it is. We, we, we believe you. <laughs> we, we trust you, Bob. <laughs> Thank you, um, um, Swati. Thank you for everything you're doing with uh, Alliant Health, our QIO. Thank you for this wonderful presentation. Everyone, thank you. We will talk to you soon. Have a great day. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.